0: Welcome to Business Questions. In this episode I'm talking to Leo Franks who's going to be talking about the favorability journey. It's a fascinating uh, principle where Leo's going to talk to us really the journey that someone takes from becoming completely unaware of your business, your brand or your product. To the point where they actually give you money and they, they they buy it so hugely interesting for absolutely every business and i know from chatting from leo uh, briefly before we started recording um this is going to be a be a really really good one leo welcome to business questions
1: hi david thank you very much for having me oh an, an absolute
0: pleasure i know it's a it's a friday afternoon here um, we're looking forward to the weekend, but I think we've always got time for, for learning, and the film's going to be here for, for, for years to come. So, really good you're motivated to talk. Lovely to see that enthusiasm in you and your passion that from what you're talking about, it really has um, come through in our sort of pre um, conversation. Uh, Leo, tell people what is the favorability journey?
1: Thank you very much, David. So, the favorability journey is a toolkit for thinking about where your customers are with you today and where you want them to be it's about creating a series of marketing and business development strategies to turn people who aren't aware of your brand into loyal customers but before perhaps i start talking about how it works mechanically maybe i can set it in some context yeah i think when you're thinking about business development marketing you need to think about the goals of the business where the business ultimately wants to go to And the goals are then followed by strategies. I say strategies in plural because there could be more than one marketing or BD strategy you want to employ to achieve those goals. But following on from those strategies are a series of specific objectives that a business might want to achieve with their marketing. And how do you put those objectives into practice? Through tactics. So the toolkit I'm talking about is the GSOT toolkit, goals, strategies, objectives, And tactics and to bring that to life with an example I'm not a a mad keen golfer but I've seen people play golf in one of two ways the first option is you go onto the clubhouse terrace and you look around the course you look at the the holes the 18 holes in front of you and you think about how you're going to play and you go to the first tee and you drive and wherever the ball lands you think about how you're going to take your next shot and you get it onto the green and you take care and putting and eventually you hold the ball And you go around systematically and methodologically thinking about your approach and trying to improve hole after hole so that for me is a planned approach the other option is to get a huge great bag of balls chuck them on the clubhouse terrace and just whack them around and hope one of them goes straight in the hole i mean that's obviously nuts it's bananas people don't do that in golf generally but sometimes you see people do that in marketing because they aren't clear about their business goals they haven't outlined the strategies; they're just focused on tactics. So, for me, start with the goals, build the strategies, define the objectives, and then put the tactics in place. So that's my overriding philosophy, and I use the favorability journey to bring the uh, the strategy piece to life.
0: Fantastic! I think that golf analogy is is absolutely brilliant. It explains it very, very well and very succinctly. And something perhaps we should all take a take a mental note of. So. Uh, a company approaches you. What steps do you do you
1: take to help them? What's the process? Good question. So I encourage people to think about where their clients are today and where they want them to be. And that is the favorability journey that I, I take people on. And for me, it's four R's recognition, reputation, relationships and revenue. And if you'll indulge me with another silly anecdote, cast your mind back to before lockdown when we could travel internationally, get on a plane, perhaps go and meet clients. So imagine this, you are abroad, you're meeting a client for a drink, you're in the hotel bar waiting for the client, you don't recognize any of the drinks in the bar, you're not familiar with the language, but you're sitting at the bar looking at the shelf and there are 40 bottles on the shelf behind you. The problem is you don't have any recognition Of those brands you're at the first stage of the favorability journey without recognition how can you possibly pick from the 40 to buy the one that you want to entertain your client with you you just can't uh, unless you go for a potluck approach but let's say you look more carefully and you realize that maybe 10 of the 40 are from a region that you've heard of that gives you a bit of comfort so you can narrow the 40 down to 10 but look 10 is still a huge range to choose from so you look more carefully at the the labels of these 10 bottles And you realize that 10 of them have a logo on them, an award logo, and that gives you some sense of quality or caliber. And you can start to narrow down uh, to those that seem to have the right set of uh, credentials, the awards that, that appeal to you. So let's say you've got five now where you know their reputation, which is the second stage of the favorability. Based on those awards, you're comfortable that some are better than others. But without any further data, five is still pretty tough. Uh, to make an educated selection from suddenly the bartender walks in you have a chat to the bartender you build a relationship with him or her you trust them you're at the third stage of the favorability journey relationships so based on the advice from this trusted bartender the bartender bartender says to you David look there are two you should go for that fit with your particular tastes one is $25 a bottle the other is $250 Now, for me, the decision's already made based on those pricing options, but let's say you're a highly paid partner in a professional services firm meeting a a big time client and and that's a reasonable amount of money to spend 250. You you now have to do a calculation. How much do you want to impress your client? What about anti-bribery rules? Are you going to get good value for money if you buy the more expensive one? So you're now at the fourth stage of this journey, the favorability journey, the revenue stage. Look, it's a silly story going into a bar, looking at the shelf, figuring out which you've got awards, talking to the bartender, looking at the pricing. But genuinely, you might go on that journey in a bar overseas. I also think realistically, it's the journey that clients go on with any brand and particularly in my area in professional services with law firms and accounting firms. The journey goes from a position where they haven't heard of us, where they don't have recognition, uh, to the point where you can build evidence of your reputation start to actually meet people and cultivate relationships and ultimately make some revenue through the right sales pitch. So I encourage my colleagues and my teams to think about clients, where they are on that journey, to get the relevant information, to understand how the client feels about us, and then to plot specific objectives and tactics to move the client along the journey, always bearing in mind the ultimate goals of the business, which we're there to to serve. So that's the favorability journey, recognition, reputation, relationships and revenue, and it creates for you the strategies that fit within the earlier framework I described, goals, strategies, objectives and tactics. And if you do that right, you might not get a hole in one, but at least you'll be able to improve your handicap.
0: Absolutely. So would you ordinarily work um, alongside uh, a marketing agency to implement uh, the, 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 the strategy or would you work as a, or would you, uh, just as a consultant coming in and doing it solo? That's
1: a good question. So, I mean, I, I've now had five director roles where I've worked in, within an organisation in-house as a director of BD and marketing. Um, I'm now with a law firm by the name of Kingsley Napley, which is a a leading uh, London-based international firm. And I tend to take responsibility myself as the director of marketing and BD for coming up with the strategies in line with the business goals. And sometimes I need to help the business clarify and codify those goals. But when we get to the point where we're developing objectives and tactics, that's when I bring in consultants or agencies I mean, if I was working in an organization where we had a team of hundreds of marketing and BD people, you might not need the extra resource, the extra skills of external advisors. But when you're working at smaller firms without hundreds of staff, there is a huge value sometimes to having external counsel, whether it's on particular technical specialisms like communications or people with real expertise in advertising or messaging. So, I mean, to summarize, I tend to take personal responsibility as a director of marketing for the strategy and I bring in agencies to help me with the tactics where we don't have the bench strength internally.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And I think that's just a a great way to actually go. I think bringing in the outside uh, consultants is very much a a common theme in all the people that I'm speaking to. It's having people who can offer that knowledge as and when they actually, um, when they need it all. Do you have any sort of uh, real life examples um, of the of the journey, of the favorability journey, and how long does the process take generally? And what sort of interesting things have you discovered on the way which has made you change uh, the direction of your marketing?
1: Yeah, really good question, David. So I'll use an example, if I may, from uh, one of my previous roles. I was working for a consulting firm and we had been looking at the market and we realised that a number of our competitors were starting to offer a particular service. I won't bore you with the, the details but it wasn't something that we were known for. We had no recognition as players in that market, even though we actually had some of the world's leading experts in that field internally. Um, And we looked at our business plan and and quickly came to the conclusion that if we didn't try and win some market share quickly, the only way we'd ever be in that market is if we went and bought a business, which is obviously a very expensive thing to do. So I was given the, uh, the mission Uh, over a one calendar year period as part of our annual business planning cycle to to try and create a scenario where we had no recognition in the market, but we'd move clients to the point where we'd actually win some revenue. So um, I began by looking at the market itself, commissioning a survey from one of the big media houses who had a, a big database of relevant customers, looking at their awareness of the market players, looking at the particular needs they had. We used that data to together some messages for our marketing for our communications for business development and we created a i'm going to use the word marketing campaign which i know not everyone likes but a specific time-bound campaign to to move clients along the journey and there were a whole series of tactics within that around building recognition through advertising through appearing on the relevant websites and search engines next looking at our reputation, evidencing the insights and calibre and quality of our in-house experts through media appearances, through writing articles, content is very important in my industry. So there was a lot of effort and time put into commissioning content, sometimes using external writers to, to ghostwrite pieces for us. And once we had that bench strength of content, we used that content to try and encourage clients to come and meet us through uh, webinars, through face-to-face events, to build those relationships at the third stage of my favorability journey, which is all fairly um, normal standard marketing behavior in in, um, professional services. But the key for me to help the business make revenue in that short period of time was the fourth stage of the journey, the revenue stage, which some people would call business development. So the final element of our campaign was turning those relationships that we'd created through the content at events into potential clients frankly by calling them emailing them asking them to meet with us Uh, and the offer was come and talk to us we'll share with you some real granular insights from that thought leadership that weren't in the white paper we'll give you and your team a custom bespoke presentation on the real secret sauce that we've discovered and about 30 percent of the people who had downloaded our white paper were willing to take that meeting which was a, a very high return so that gave our people with a know a large range of customers to go out and meet to make those presentations and we were successful in in winning quite a large number of assignments in year one so it was a time-bound campaign based on the need to try and win share before our competitors really owned the market and it was all about having an integrated process across marketing comms and business development again using this model favorability journey recognition reputation relationships and revenue
0: So in the content marketing, that was there to establish yourselves as the experts within your your fields. You mentioned you create a lot of content. Can you give some sort of, you know, for for a smaller business, how much? And it shouldn't just be content, it has to be valuable um, content, especially in terms of the the SEO factor. Google wants to provide searchers. With the answers to their their problems, so you know it's got to be quite specific, very relevant to the people. But as a large organisation, I mean, how much, how many pieces of content would you be creating, and are they generally short or long form, or is it a
1: mixture of uh, of those? Really good question. So. Um, I, I really think horses for courses, a mixture depending on the resources you have, the markets you're in, the um, the time that you have available to you. And the other thing, of course, to bear in mind is the preferences of the market you're seeking to address. I've seen some excellent pieces of content produced in fairly short, short timescales without a lot of money spent that just don't land with the audience because they're the wrong format. One of the firms I worked at a few years ago, we had a big content production machine, I saw a lovely piece of content, which was about 50 pages put together and put out to market. But the audience we were trying to reach, who demographically were, I don't want to use the phrase phrase millennials, but of a particular generation working in a certain type of industry, they didn't want to read 50 pages of closed type content. What they wanted was a couple of pages of infographics with the key points called out. And we'd completely failed in that situation to think of the audience preferences. We did have a great idea. We really understood the client issue, but ultimately as marketeers, as communicators, we need to think about what our customers want and how they prefer to consume information. And that situation we'd failed. Um, and if I give you one, um, one other thought on the point of content, I've developed a model over the years for producing content that resonates with, uh, with clients. I call it the content tree. Um, If you will, imagine for a second uh, a tree. Uh, We think of it as five stages. The first stage are the seeds, and the seeds for me are the essence of the idea, the things that are keeping clients awake at night. The seeds then grow into some shoots. The shoots for me are a very simple summary of the argument of your piece of content, the hypothesis, if you will, what the problem is, what the solution is. And that's great. You can validate that. You can test that. If you get buy-in, the next thing to do is to really evidence the hypothesis with what I call roots. And the roots is the evidence, the data, some research, market analysis, whatever it is that allows you to thoroughly test the hypothesis and draw some conclusions that are of value. The fourth stage is the trunk, a really solid body of content, whether it's a white paper or an infographic or whatever it is that takes the data from your your roots and turns it into something consumable by the market and the fifth stage of this tree is uh, the branches or the leaves if you will the things that actually are visible and go out there and they are for me the channels to market the marketing tactics that you might want to employ so it's five stages the first is the seeds the client issue the second is the shoots the initial formulation or hypothesis the third is the roots you know the meaty evidence fourth is the trunk, the body of work, and the fifth is the branches, the way you get it out to market. But the final thought on this is, you can't just plant the seeds and hope for the best. You have to think about the branches, the leaves, the channels at the beginning. Because as I said earlier on, if you don't think about how your customers want to receive information, you can have the sturdiest tree in the world, but no flowers will grow, because customers won't want to pollinate your flowers. I'm sorry, I've gone too far with the analogy now, haven't I?
0: No, 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 that's absolutely, absolutely fine. And the other thing, you know, I think that's um, what I've always understood to be important um, when you're creating content, is actually if you've created a a, a, a um, 1,000 word article, there's actually lots of micro bits in there which you can use uh, numerous times across the, the relevant platforms. It might be a sentence, a quote, going on Twitter, or there may be an infographic you can then produce um, for Instagram. Is that something which, which holds true for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Some of my colleagues will call it chunking, breaking down the key insights, the key points of information into various nuggets that you can then disseminate through different channels. And sometimes that's a series of data points that you can put together in a nice infographic. Sometimes it's a couple of quotes from the piece, either from uh, clients, reference sources, or from your own analysis. Again, though, you have to think about the channel. You have to think about what looks best and resonates and will attract attention. So for me, if you're using social media, for example, I like to see some visuals, but with some data in there. So I, I see a lot of social media posts with lovely pictures of people but they don't really give me anything. Sure, I might find the person interesting to look at, but what do they tell me about the content? So my preference with that chunked approach is if you've got a key statistic, put it in the post with a nice little pie chart on the graphic that draws the eye and evidences the key insight. I mean, I'm, I'm not the, uh, the world's foremost expert in, in branding. I, there are other people out there with better knowledge than I have, but I've certainly seen far better return on investment with our posts when we're data led rather than just entirely imagery-led if that makes sense
0: no absolutely and so in marketing in 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 general Leo was there um any moment where you've had an aha moment this is something which has really worked or something that's really stuck in some golden nuggets of, of marketing information
1: yeah um maybe I'll give you an example so um I've used my planning approach, the favorability journey over the years, Um, but I've discovered that the most successful uh, programs or campaigns, the ones with the best ROI, are the ones that really have a a wow factor around some of the tactics. And I'll give you an example of where we did that really effectively. With one of the programs I was running a number of years ago, we looked at the demographics of the target market and they were a particular role of individual chief financial officers in large companies. And we looked at their socioeconomic background and and their personal interests. We wanted to talk about particular content we had on a topic which we knew was relevant. So if you think back to my content tree, we knew the seeds really hit the client issue. But the problem was the market was saturated with content on this. It was a very particular issue around regulation a few years ago, I won't bore you with the detail. We needed a, a wow factor to get people in the room and um looking at the demographics of the target market one of the things that stood out was their love for cricket which is not a sport that i've ever played um i didn't grow up in a, a town or a school where cricket was the sport so this wasn't my preference but it was very much led by the demographics so i booked the uh, the then england cricket captain alistair cook to come to a dinner where we were gonna talk about our research, but our research had a, um, a tinge of, of leadership around it, which was obviously his particular spike. And you know, the first point is we invited 70 people uh, for 50 places, 50 people turned up on the night, top tier potential clients. Uh, they stayed all the way throughout the evening, engaged thoroughly the discussion, particularly when Alistair started speaking on, on leadership. And at the end of the night, I stood up and I said to the audience, if anyone would like a picture with Alistair, please come to the front of the room. And my chairman who was sitting next to me said, no, 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 that's a bit crass, no one will want it. The moment he finished saying that to me, all 50 of these CFOs got up and ran to the front of the room, pushing past each other to, to get a picture of Alistair. So you know, our content was what allowed us to contact them and was what we wanted to talk about. But to cut through the noise of all of our competitors, talking about the same thing. We needed that wow factor. And for that demographic, the all-time run score, England cricket captain, certainly worked. It might not have been my thing, but it wasn't about me. It was about the clients. And that certainly worked to, to cut through the noise, as I say.
0: No, I, I absolutely. Think that's the key to masking, isn't it? It's just understanding your, your customer and understanding what where, where their eyeballs are, what their interests are, and then communicating um, like that with them. Well, what tips would you give in marketing to small businesses?
1: I, I think the most important thing for me is always to think about your customer, to think about your customer when you're building your products, when you're putting your revenue model together. And importantly, of course, when you're doing your marketing, I, I mean, I've worked nearly all of my career in professional services, and there is a tendency for people to say, I know about professional service X, I am the world's foremost expert in in service x i will therefore talk about that service and hope that people come and that sometimes works i as a marketer will always say okay i know you are the world's leading expert in x but let's think about the client need what situation do they find themselves in where our service will appeal to them so what is our proposition and that can sometimes be a difficult conversation to have especially when you have people who are very eminent and very successful trying to go back to basics is is sometimes a difficult thing to do but it absolutely helps in terms of refining the marketing message and picking the right tactics so that's the, the message I would give whether you're thinking about marketing or about your products or about your overall operating structure put the customer the client at the heart of everything you do don't just think about what widgets you have to sell think about what problem your clients have that they need widgets for to fix if that makes sense
0: it does. Oh, thank you so much. Joel. it's been some absolutely fascinating uh, the information you, you you've given. Very very insightful, and I've certainly learned a lot. So I think business is is mindset as well. Um, to, to quite a great extent, actually, in how we think about things and how we process things and how we approach business. It's a, it's a way of thought that can be transformational. Um. Tell me about with the favorability journey. Is that something that people can speak to you about, or is it through um, your company? What What's the best way for people to actually read about it in a little more little more depth?
1: Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate the uh, the opportunity, David. I published a series of articles actually about the favorability journey, which are. Um, Available online. If you were to Google the phrase favorability journey, they'll come up. Or alternatively, if, if you're on LinkedIn and you were to look up my profile, Lee or Franks, you'll see them at the, uh, the top of my profile. Happy to share with anyone who, who's interested. Uh, I think there's wide application across all industries. You know, I have to say, there are plenty of other similar models out there. So it may not be about my model, it may just be about having a model, a structure, a process. If you come back to my earlier remarks about golf, You you can either chuck a whole bunch of balls on the terrace and whack them and see what happens, or you can have a more planned approach. So I think the important thing is to have that plan, whether you use My favorability Journey or something out of a marketing textbook, you'll certainly see a lot more value if you plan, measure and monitor, rather than just whacking balls off the terrace and hoping for the best.
0: Which actually brings me on to a, a, another point which has just come to me, which you could use in that analogy, which I'm going to use um, going forward. And I do hope you um you agree with me on this point. But lots of business owners, especially small business owners, family companies, they, are, they, they have a know-it-all culture. We know everything. We don't really need outside help. Occasionally, they do get it in. Um, they certainly don't uh, or generally don't have a, a deep understanding of marketing. They have a, a surface level. But a lot of these people actually... They may be playing golf and I put money on the fact they've been to the golf course and they paid for lessons for a a professional. Shouldn't they be doing the same in their professional lives and paying for a consultant in marketing or HR to come along and actually give them the benefit of their knowledge?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I I played a bit of golf um, uh, when I was at university and um, I had several friends who were just naturally talented. could put a ball in front of them and they could drive straight onto the tee on a 300 yard hole not fair amazing i mean they they never had any training they never had any background you know one of them didn't even own his own clubs he just had that natural gift and it's the same in business there are some people who just get it they know what clients want they know how to put the product together they know how to market it uh, and that's wonderful and and you see some of those people at the top of the Forbes rich list and if everyone had that skill, there'd be no need for consultants. There'd be no need for in-house HR marketing operations departments or whatever. I, on the other hand, on the golf course, I don't have that natural skill. And I don't play regularly now, but I certainly did have lessons with the pro years back when I wanted to try and figure out how to you know, drive on a long haul or how to, uh, you know, to get a ball out of the rough. So I needed that expertise. I needed that insight. And there are a lot of people out there who probably would would uh, really improve their game if they had a pro with them, giving them little tips as well as helping them with the overall strategy. So it depends where you are. If you've got the natural gift and you don't need any help, why bother bringing anyone in? But I think the vast majority of people would always benefit from having professional advice, whether it's an external consultant or an in-house specialist to help them with all of their functional needs.
0: And also, I think it brings me on to another point an analogy that I can personally um relate to is that don't try and necessarily do things which you don't have an understanding of and you can't afford a consultant for. I'm going to bring this back to, to golf when I used to play. And we used to go away as a group of, you know, 20 every year. We play a championship course. And every year I would get the wooden spoon, for the worst player. And I got thoroughly fed up of that because you in a group of lads and um, some ladies as well. And we all get our big drivers out and we whack it, and my balls going left, right and never, ever centre absolute nightmare so one year i find you know what i'm going to play with three clubs i'm going to take a five iron a pitching wedge and the putter and you know what i unbeaten i was player of the year because i knew i could hit those clubs down the center of the fairway onto the green and putt so i actually took things back to basics and stopped trying to do things which i hadn't got the skill set to do and i needed to learn more um and hopefully people can just see how that might you know, fit in in terms of consultants and not doing things which you, you haven't got the skill set to do because invariably you're going to get it, get it wrong.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good story, um, David. Uh, and I was uh, really empathising with that until you talked about the fact you got to a point where you were winning, which has never been my, uh, my story in golf. But I think one of the things to remember is, and I can only really talk about marketing and, and comms and BD, is, you know, there is a downside to getting it wrong. There's risk, there's the potential to damage your brand, to waste money, and in some situations to break regulation. Um, You know, a while back um, in a previous role, uh, one of my internal clients was saying to me, they had this great idea and they didn't need any help. And I said to them, what about GDPR, the the data protection regulations? And they looked at me as if I just conjured up four random netters and stuck them together. And they said, look, I don't know anything about GDPR, but it doesn't matter, I'm gonna go and do this. And I said to them, look, the tactics you're articulating are are sensible based on the market, but we're gonna get sued. And as someone who is responsible on the management team for our brand and risk around our reputation, I've got to ask you to hold on a second there because if you do that and it goes wrong, we will be in a lot of trouble. And I certainly don't want to be in an organization that is breaching rules and getting things wrong and losing huge amounts of money simply because we couldn't be bothered to pause, understand the rules and do it properly. So for people listening to this and thinking, oh, I can just, you know, I can put the balls on the clubhouse terrace and bang them around and hope for the best. In some situations you can, but you don't know what you don't know. There are rules, regulations and risks out there. And sometimes asking for professional input is the only way of ensuring that your great idea isn't going to get you a, a huge bill at the end of the uh, the day.
0: Absolutely. I think we should point out we actually have a, a video on GDPR, speaking with an expert. I'm discussing lots of things. And my bet is that most uh, small to medium-sized businesses are actually not compliant with GDPR. Um, especially with um, Brexit, and even on their, their, their laptops, it's surprising the rules and regulations there are. And it is definitely worth speaking to an expert to ensure that you you are fully compliant. Leo, thank you very, very much indeed for your, your insightful knowledge. And really, everyone go to Leo's LinkedIn profile. I'm gonna give the address below. And also you see it on the screen here. Please go there, read about um, it more. And Leo, thank you very much indeed.